You're listening to the Disney One by One podcast, a chronological look at every Disney animated classic and beyond. Here's your host, Mike Rolfing. Hello and welcome again to Disney One by One. This week, we're talking about Oliver and Company from 1988. It is the 27th movie on this list and the first movie that I was alive during its release. Happy birthday to me? No, whatever. (laughs) Remember, you can check us out everywhere on the internet at Disney1x1. And of course, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We read them, and we read them here on the show. We love to see them. So real quick, we have a very special announcement to make on the show today. You will not want to miss it, but I'm going to save it to the end of this episode. So listen to the whole thing. As always with me today is my brother, David Rolfing. David, you are my, my company to my Oliver. <laughs> I never think of these ahead of time. David. Wait, the, who are the two Dobermans? Roscoe and DeSoto. You should go with My that. Oliver to my Dodger. I'm not saying this right. It's late. It's late. We're recording this for late, but thanks for being here, Dave. And with us today is a returning guest. You heard him way back on episode eight with Make Mine Music. Forrest Hughes, welcome back to Disney One by One. Can I be the butler? Yeah, what was his name? Butler. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk about um, talk about a movie that has a full plot line. Yeah, so which one were you on? You're on Make Mine Music. That yeah. was just a bunch of segmented little musical numbers. And yeah. uh, This is a big upgrade. Yeah, I liked that one, though. That one had, that one had uh, Casey at the Bat. Oh, yeah. And The Singing Whale. That was probably yeah, one of yeah. the. That, it wasn't probably, bad. It's probably the best yeah. one of all of those package films. So, Mike, side note: you have a Spider-Man costume hanging up on your door behind you. Are you did you accidentally reveal your true identity? Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. It's like a legit costume. <laughs> There's a local trivia night that I I went to with a friend with some friends that was superhero themed, and they had a prize for the best decorated and or dressed table so we all went as superheroes marvel superheroes and by the time i was aware that the dress-up thing was happening that all that was left was left with spider-man so i bought the spandex and i did it and it was pretty awesome are you keeping that thing or is that an amazon return costume no i'm keeping it it wasn't that expensive and it's kind of sweet and so I, yeah you look really good in it i figured i may utilize it again at some point so i held on to it very nice i did buy like three sizes because i didn't know what would fit so i did <laughs> i did return the other two <laughs> <laughs> but the first one I tried on fit perfectly fine, so I didn't, I didn't even open the other ones. So, Forrest, you are in Colorado, correct? That's right. This is we had our guest last week was in Denver, Colorado as well. So this is just a Colorado We're taking heavy show over. Here. Yeah, taking over from the St. Louis crew. But Forrest, you lived in New York City for a little while. I did. I lived there for three years. So, and this movie we're talking about today takes place in New York City, which we will get to. In a few minutes, but first, <laughs> I was just recalling what we talked about last time with you. That's right. Our incredible day at Disney, the Magic Kingdom. I wish we could just ex- talk about all that again because it was fantastic. <laughs> I-, I do talk about it every day, Mike. <laughs> I tell tell the story of my wife over breakfast. Yes, and regale her with those tales. Did we have breakfast, or we probably skipped that meal? I don't think we had breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just had the uh, Mickey Mouse ice cream thing <laughs> probably i don't know if we talked about this last time but uh one of the one of the moments that i remember one of the nefarious things that you taught me uh, while we were there was 
this was I, I hadn't been to Disney World too many times since the the fast pass system at the time had been implemented <laughs> uh, um and this was the fast pass system not with the bracelets but where you'd go up to the to the ride and you'd um go click your button and you'd come back later with a ticket for a certain amount of time yeah and uh someone who shall not be named pulled out a giant ziploc bag <laughs> Of fast passes and was like, dude, we've beat the system. Let's just say my my guest on the trip. <laughs> yeah, this was Dave. This was David's friend. Uh, we were. I was like, how did you get that? <laughs> and I, I don't know if this is true, but this is the story that they told me: is uh, if you'd walk up to those fast pass booths, um, they'd always have one employee standing there, and that employee was standing next to the booth that was. I don't know, unlocked or something, or it had a, a button exposed. And this family would send their little kids over to that worker to ask them a question while someone else would run behind the booth and press the button a hundred times. And it would just spit fast pass tickets out at you. And they'd take all of them. And then, and then what you could do is while you're in line is you'd just flash like six fast passes at once. And they, they rarely would check all of them. And so that's how we skimmed the fast pass system. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, that is generally true. I I was opposed to the hiding the fake fast passes behind the real fast pass scheme as a mainly a rule following type of person. Don't get me wrong; I like to cheat the system. I I still like to try to find ways to do that at Disney, but absolutely. But, but hiding expired fast passes behind legit ones, and so they had just these stacks of old ones they didn't use that were from like years ago. But because they had the right ride on them, they were never going to check the date. Right. And so you could just kind of stick them all <laughs> together and, and use ones that were expired to, to yeah, yeah. That, that was that was what Kevin wanted to do. I believe I only did that maybe you once. Revealed the, you, you revealed, revealed the name. name. Oh, no. <laughs> we know lots of Kevins. That's all right. I think he'd be proud to reveal his method. <laughs> We tried many of the kiosks to see if the button worked, and it never did on Magic Kingdom Day. Mm. But when David and I were at, and Kevin, were at Hollywood Studios the following day, or one of the following days, one of the one of the FastPass kiosks for Star Tours was unlocked. And we rode that ride 13 times that day. <laughs> <laughs> How many times did you have the same experience on that one? A few, but we saw every variation. There are three sections to the video. We saw every combo. Yeah, nice. well, I was under the impression that there were 51 different scenes, but there are 51 different combinations. Yeah. So oh, there are much right. fewer scenes. Gotcha. So we did see them all way earlier than we thought we did. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. other thing that we did, which... I wouldn't even I wouldn't really call this cheating at all. But Kevin had some old form, some old piece of paper from like a previous trip. They had complained to guest services and they gave him this sheet of paper that said you can it's it was like a fast pass for any ride you want. At <laughs> at Animal <laughs> at, at Animal Kingdom. But but they didn't use it because they were like going home that day. And so he still had this piece of paper from maybe six months, a year prior, for any ride at Animal Kingdom. We were at Hollywood Studios, <laughs> and we had been trying to get on the Midway Mania ride all day, which was, at the time, the most popular ride there, and I don't think it is anymore because the Slinky Dog ride's open, well, and Star Wars Land will be opening very soon. 
So we went up to the FastPass person monitoring it and showed them the piece of paper and said, can we use this to get in here? And that person was like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> and waved <laughs> us through. And But we have to, you have to get through a second person often at the second FastPass checkpoint. Uh-huh. And that person was like, this is for Animal Kingdom. We're like, well, that person said we could use it. And the person, the guy was like, all right, whatever. <laughs> and let us through. And we rode the ride. And this was the end of the day. So the wait was still two hours long. We rode the ride. And at the very end of it, David's gun and or car started like wailing, like this like beeping warning sound. And they're like, is your thing messed up? And he's like, yeah, I guess. And they said, you want to ride it again? <laughs> we said, Sure. We, we stayed on and just stay well we, we switched cars because your cars your car was messed up yeah and then we got right back on and rode it twice with the animal but, with the animal kingdom complaint form i don't know if i could go to disney world without you guys things just happen to you good well, things. There, there are positive things normally no yeah good things happen oh, to yes. you in, oh. in, a, in in the way that uh gives you a better experience you just yeah. got to be smart <laughs> And and take advantage when you can without breaking rules. That's that's yeah, I mean, that's my philosophy. You paid enough money. Yes, exactly. It's not like you're jumping over the fence to get in. No, just just don't pretend you're handicapped. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let that one be. We we didn't do that. Just disclosure. <laughs> yeah, we did not do that. And there was a time where people were like renting handicapped people. Do you remember those stories? Are you serious? Yes, because it used to be if you were in a wheelchair or had the right form you could just go straight through the exit and get on any ride immediately and so they were handicapped people that were literally renting themselves out there were big news stories about it and then then disney changed the system so that you still had to wait in like a a virtual line it's disney prostitution yeah (laughs) so if you're handicapped and you want to ride peter pan you're still going to wait an hour you just they'll just give you a a ticket to come back as opposed to like immediately being able to just get on get get on the ride Anyway, I could talk about Disney parks forever, but we're here to talk about Oliver and Company. So with that, we will get on to Oliver and Company. And now, our feature presentation. For over 50 years, Walt Disney has turned great stories into unforgettable animated motion pictures. Now the tradition continues as Walt Disney Pictures proudly presents a new twist on the classic story of Oliver. A pussycat? Come on, let's eat him. I love a story with food in it. We've talked quite a bit in the last couple episodes about Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg. They both joined Disney from Paramount in 1984. And this was the first movie to begin production under the Eisner-Katzenberg reign. After Black Cauldron was kind of a failure, <laughs> they put together a pitch meeting where they had everyone come in a room and just start pitching ideas because they're like, we need to <laughs> pull ourselves out of, out of the depths. And this was the meeting where Ron Clements and and John Musker first pitched Little Mermaid, and they also pitched, quote-unquote, Treasure Island in Space, which eventually became Treasure Planet. But neither of those were jumped on immediately, uh, but a young animator named Pete Young suggested Oliver Twist with Dogs. And Katzenberg had previously worked on an adaptation of live-action Oliver at Paramount. I don't think the movie actually got made, but he was a fan of, of, of Oliver Twist in general. And so he approved the idea, and development carried on. Obviously, Oliver and Company is based on Oliver Twist, the book by Charles Dickens. And the working title of the movie was Oliver and the Dodger. 
So this movie began development, and it originally was much darker. It opened, the original opening scene was the Dobermans murdering Oliver's parents. <laughs> oh my God. Jeez. Which honestly isn't that much different than the previous one, David. The, the Great Mouse Detective begins with, with a little girl's dad being kidnapped by a freaky bat with one leg. Yeah, it's like a legit home invasion situation. Right. So I guess it wasn't a, a far cry from previous movies, but they uh, decided to work on that a little bit. I did. I even thought that there were parts of the movie that got produced that were were, were rather dark. Yeah. So guys named George Scribner and Richard Rich, Richie Rich, Macaulay Culkin, were named as the directors on this movie. But uh, Richie Rich was fired six months into production. So Scribner ended up being the lone director on this movie. And he didn't do much other directing in his career. He had worked in the animation department on a few other Disney films. But the biggest thing that he directed that I'm aware of is uh, Mickey's Philharmagic Orchestra. Oh. which is a, a 4D attraction at Magic Kingdom. Scribner was kind of the, the lead in de- in developing and evolving this that, that darker plot into what it ended up being. So they uh, animated this movie <laughs> like they usually do, but this one had 11 minutes of computer-generated imagery, uh, including skyscrapers, taxi cabs, trains, uh, the, the scooter cart of, of uh, what's the guy's name? Fagan. Fagan. And, uh, and and the subway, the climactic subway chase were all created by computers. So huge chunks of this movie, this continued evolution into, into more and more computer computer animation. The cast of this movie, some big names in this movie, which uh, this is one of the first times, there's certainly been recognizable names in some of these, but and I guess because this is a newer one, these are more recognizable, but uh, the voices of Bette Midler, who played the poodle, Georgette, Cheech Marin from Cheech and Chong, plays the Chihuahua Tito, and uh, Billy Joel, good old Billy Joel, plays Dodger. Not just the singing, the talking voice oh, yeah. also. Yes, he's, yeah. he's both the singing and talking voice. Now let's talk about uh, the music real quick, and we'll certainly get into more details as we dive into the movie, but the score, another new guy. Last last week we had Henry, uh, Henry Mancini. This week we have J.A.C. Redford, who did the score. Among, among many, many movie scores, he did... Uh, Newsies and D2 the Mighty Ducks, two of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. I didn't know that he did Newsies because while I was watching this, I said this sounds like Newsies. <laughs> he did at least like the sco- like the the parts of the score, yeah. like not the songs, but the score, yeah. That's hilarious. And then Katzenberg decided to bring in some big names to help write the songs for this movie. You know, Disney movies are well known for their for their their songs and in their music and so he brought in billy joel as we mentioned who also played dodger and then both barry manilow and huey lewis helped write songs for this movie i most know huey lewis from back to the future he sings the the power of love that's the power of love great song he sings that opening song in this movie once upon a time in new york city which was something i will just say that for now they also brought in Howard Ashman, who composed the music to Once Upon a Time in New York City, and we'll talk much more about him next week with The Little Mermaid, as he was uh, a crucial part in the music of that movie. This was the first Disney movie to have real-world products in it. We're in New York City, and there's lots of advertisements around Times Square and other parts of the city, so more than 30 company logos appear in this movie, but not a single one of them actually paid for it. It wasn't product placement. It was just supposed to be like realism. 
which would never happen today. <laughs> wow. I mean, the, the brands you can see in the, some of the shots are Kodak, Sony, Diet Coke, Tab, there's McDonald's, USA Today, a whole bunch of things in the background, and not a single one of those actually paid for it. It's especially interesting because it's animated. Like, if it was a live-action movie and they just left logos in, but they purposefully put those in there. Yeah. Right. Without being paid. The movie was released November 18th, 1988, on the same day or near the same day as the 60th anniversary of Steamboat Willie, which was the original Mickey Mouse cartoon. It opened the same weekend as Don Bluth's The Land Before Time. And David, last week we were talking about Don Bluth, and uh, who was a former animator with Disney who started his own company, and Disney seems to do all they can to shut him down. <laughs> <laughs> So he released The Land Before Time the same weekend, and Land Before Time actually made more money initially, but Oliver and Company ultimately made $74 million after uh, its couple releases. And its second time it was released was March 1996, the same day as All Dogs Go to Heaven 2, <laughs> which was the sequel to Don Bluth's All Dogs Go to Heaven. So it's pretty funny how, how they do this like every time now. Yeah, it's also funny, like, as a kid, I did not know the difference between his set of movies and Disney movies. They all kind of blended together. Because of its success, Katzenberg and also Disney VP Peter Schneider announced that this would be the start of a new era of Disney, where they will make a new movie every single year, just like Walt had planned back in the day. And looking at the list, I'm not sure how long that actually lasted. But they have remained pretty consistent since then. So, Do they ever do more than one a year? Well, just looking at the years, Fantasia 2000, Dinosaur, and Emperor's New Groove all came out in 2000. Great year for Disney. Lilo and Stitch, Treasure Planet were both 2002. And this, again, isn't, isn't even counting Pixar. So, mm. The movie got a Golden Globe nomination for the song Why Should I Worry, but it didn't win anything. So, uh, That's about all I got for Oliver and Company. David, anything good? couple of quick ones. Uh, the Dobermans, Roscoe and DeSoto, were named after San Fernando Valley Streets, right next to Walt Disney Studios. And Patrick Stewart almost voiced Francis, the kind of gray, I guess he's a bulldog. Hmm. Um, but he was too busy filming Star Trek in 87, so they got somebody else, Roscoe Brown, to voice that dog. Interesting. That is all. Before we move on, I want to remind you of a special announcement we have at the end of the show. So stay tuned. Don't leave. <laughs> Forrest, as a former New Yorker, I assume you watch this movie weekly. Yeah, it's, it plays in Times Square. <laughs> What's your history with Oliver and Company? So when you had asked me about this movie, I, I didn't think that I'd seen it. As I started watching it, I'd recognized a few scenes. So I must have somehow seen at least parts of it but i couldn't have told you the plot before i watched it today but yeah i w what struck out to me as i was watching the opening scene it was nice and it's a nice and slow open so you can really take in the setting and just the details of like how much how many of the like the little things they captured about new york city and they didn't make it very glamorous either which was kind of uh yeah it was kind of dirty it's kind of dirty it's like there's traffic everywhere. I mean, the the cityscape looks beautiful. Yeah, construction. There's trash. There's, and I bet that's probably a bit indicative of the late '80s in New York, especially. Sure. David, had you seen Oliver and Company before? Maybe I don't. I'm not really sure. Maybe some of it. Maybe parts on TV or something. But definitely not all the way through. I didn't even know which character was Oliver until like he got his name tag. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, I, I you know, I had a guess. Like, is it the cat or is it the main dog? What Tucker or what's Dodger. his name? Dodger. I thought Dodger could have been Oliver for like half the movie. So, <laughs> are you familiar with Oliver Twist? Yeah, and I, okay. now I know that it's based off of that, but I didn't realize that correlation okay. when I was watching it. <laughs> this is a common theme with David, which I love. Total blindness coming into these. Um, yeah, and in, in, in Oliver Twist, the character's name is the Artful Dodger. So oh. that's why they called him Dodger. Gotcha. Ah. So yeah, I, I had not seen this. However, as I've expressed many times on this show, a, at least a couple of the songs in this movie were on some sim- sing-along VHS tapes. So I had definitely seen the Why Should I Worry? That sequence many times. But the movie itself, I don't think so. I do believe th- there was a trailer for this movie on some other movie we watched all the time. I couldn't tell you which one, but there were a couple other like lines and little like catchphrases. When the Chihuahua says, if this is torture, chain me to the wall. I had heard that before <laughs> and it must have been in a trailer because that just like, whoa, like that line is in my in my subconscious. Oliver and Company own it on video September 24th. Hey, man, if this is torture, chain me to the wall. You know, I'm familiar with Oliver Twist. We, we, uh, where I work, we often sing the food, glorious food song from Oliver Forrest. Are you familiar with that? I don't know that song. David, do you know food, glorious yeah. food? Yeah. Food, glorious food, hot sausage and mustard. Like when we go to so lunch. You sing that before you eat lunch Yeah, that's when we go to lunch. <laughs> someone will just wow. come in and, someone will just come in and whistle. And then we know it's time for lunch. Um, I work with nerds. It's fun. But other than that, don't think I'd seen this. So it was nice to finally watch it for the first time. Okay, Oliver and company. Forrest, you've watched it now. Yep. What was your sort of initial overall reaction? You kind of mentioned the the opening credits, but I'm sure you have a little bit more than that. Yeah, totally. I think I thought uh, I, I was hooked right away just because it was in New York City, and um, I'm constantly fascinated by this style of animation, pre-digital animation. So I was hooked. I thought it was uh, – I'm a big musical guy. And it had that feel, like I mentioned, it felt like the Newsies as that first song kicked in. And uh, <laughs> so I was I was totally in it. And I'm definitely going to add that to my Disney playlist on Spotify now. But I saw okay, two things I thought were really interesting. First off, the first thing I wrote down uh, before I went and read anything about this movie yeah. was I wrote, the perspective is very interesting. Uh, some of the shots were very indicative of who was not talking, but who was looking, right? It was very much not at human eye level. Mm-hmm. And then when I went and read about the movie, I, I read that you guys probably talked about this with Lady and the Tramp. They they, they um, basically went and filmed a bunch of these scenes in live action from the perspective of some of these animals to give to give the animators like the the right eye level of like what, what a cat would see as they were doing this scene. So I thought that was fascinating and it stuck out to me before I even knew they did that. Sure. But then I also then I, I, I while I was watching the opening scene I was kind of like okay who's who's watching this movie maybe it's a younger crowd maybe it's uh three guys in their 20s and 30s who knows but um if it was you know a, a younger crowd I, I I would bet that the story like 
resonates in a way that's kind of this like, hey, I'm this like little kid. How do I fit into this big world that's all around me? And so I just thought it was a good story that would resonate with um, kids growing up trying to find their way with life and big kids and big things and stuff like that. So sure. seems like they very quickly veered away from the Oliver Twist story. Yeah. I don't totally. think there's like hostages taken and stuff in the Charles Dickens novel. I could I could be wrong. I don't think so. Speaking of hostages, yes. Did you guys read this about the panda? Uh, I, yeah, I saw something about it. Go ahead. I laughed so hard when I read that that there that in the original script or it was it was um, pitched to have a scene where they steal a rare Asian panda from the zoo. <laughs> And, like and why who in order to I, hold I it hostage it, to hold it hostage and that's how um, fagan was going to get his money yeah i mean this says uh. this says the 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 panda subplot was eventually dropped when the director suggested to have fagan hold oliver for ransom because he was a valuable rare rare asian cat mm. so right. they just made oliver more valuable than than he initially was i do wish i could have seen that scene though <laughs> All right, David, you've seen Oliver and Company for the first time. What do you think about it? Um, I enjoyed it. I really liked, you mentioned this, kind of like the perspective of the animals. Like Oliver at the beginning, you really felt for him almost getting washed away into the sewer and just like, like how is this little kitten going to find his way in New York City, this massive metropolis um i really enjoyed the like band of friends and their group they all had really fun personalities and just like how quickly oliver bonded with them was endearing tito i thought was hilarious and just had so many lines that were making me laugh i wasn't a huge fan of the villain i don't know he was all right i guess the dogs made it a little bit more him more of like a imposing character i guess relating to the dogs with his two mean dogs but i did think it was like interesting that they like mixed dog and human protagonists yeah at one point i I was kind of wondering like what the you know different movies like sometimes animals can understand what humans are saying sometimes humans you know just hear barking from dogs things like that at one point like towards the end of the movie the butler hears the model dog the show dog like talking to oliver but then he's hearing a bark from his perspective so they kind of gave that away that the humans aren't actually hearing what the dogs are saying but they didn't mix them kind of interestingly but that's about all mike what did you think about it this is an interesting one for me i think my biggest hang up with it is how dated it feels (laughs) i feel like so many of these movies are just timeless and this one, just like from the start with the music, not the score, but like when Huey Lewis starts singing. Now it's always once upon a time in New York City. It's like, now it's always, I don't remember the tune, but like it's now it's always once upon a time in New York City. It's a big old, bad old, tough old town. It's true. The beginning. I mean, is that is that a reflection on you not liking the 80s though? The 80s, are, the 80s can be fine. I don't know. I just think Disney even... Uh, recently is if oh, I guess don't don't count Wreck It Ralph because that's pretty could be pretty dated but but so many of these movies are not right. I would say The Rescuers is the other one that feels predated but not quite as bad because they end up like in the Bayou in New Orleans so that can feel a little more timeless. Yeah, and New York was essentially a character in this one too, right? Yeah. 
Well, I will say it reminded me of, and I don't know what this is saying, but it reminded me a lot of Randy Newman stuff in Toy Story. I mean, yeah. those songs in Toy Story and Randy, Randy Newman is such an odd voice. Right. <laughs> like the song where, where Buzz, where Buzz is just found out that he's a toy. It's like, I can fly if I wanted to. <laughs> but I can fly. On the wings, I can fly. I can fly. It's so... But I don't know. It fits somehow. Maybe it's just because I'm so... I love Toy Story so much that I'm blind to it. I'm, I'm railing on the music a little too much. But I think for me, kind of like the the humor and the relationships between the... The hobo dogs yeah. is what kind of made me enjoy. That was the part that I enjoyed the most about the movie. Just kind of the humor and the all the different pieces of trash that they collected, but they thought it was like treasure. It's just it was just funny all those interactions and with their their owner, whoever that guy was. The ho- I just call him the hobo. I don't know his name. Fagin. Fagin. Yeah. yeah. Fagin, the guy who's gonna steal the panda. Well, what I'll say to that, David, is we've had. I feel like we've had better bands of dogs <laughs> in these movies. Hundred One Dalmatians had incredible side dog characters. The ones that are like in the barn that like help them pass the word down. The the, the what are they called? The London Bark. Yeah, some great characters. There's like this collie that's super regal and really really cool. And and then you go Lady and the Tramp. There's a whole band of dogs that help them save save Lady, save the save the baby. We've had a lot of bands of dogs. <laughs> but they don't have Tito, and I and I feel like this was the lesser version of that. Uh, I don't know, like Tito, like hot wired cars, <laughs> like all this stuff. I liked I liked Dodger. I liked his song. Why should I worry? A little Billy Joel number. I enjoyed that. I thought that song was fun. He had his song, the poodle had hers. Was there another one? There was one sung by Rita, which was like the female dog. Oh, yeah. The song was called Streets of Gold. And then there was the song that the kids sang, which I actually really liked that. That felt the most Disney to me. It was called Good Company, where she was singing about how much oh, yeah. she loved the cat. Yeah, that's right. So that one, that one felt pretty Disney. Speaking of New York City, it was it was curious to see the World Trade Centers in here. It was there was, there was a nice first long, thing I noticed. Yeah, nice long shot of the of the twin towers at one point. Which, the first shot I think was of the skyline. Yep, that and then they had like a shot that kind of tilted and panned up to the World Trade Center. It reminded me of, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a number of weeks. But Lilo and Stitch came out in 2002, and obviously 9/11 was in 2001. And there's a whole sequence that was that was completely animated for Lilo and Stitch which was like an airplane flying through a cityscape, like low flying through buildings and like crashing through buildings and stuff. And 9-11 happened and that became very sensitive. And so they reanimated the entire thing and they turned it into a spaceship and they like completely changed the setting of it. And you can go on YouTube and find a side-by-side. 
And it's fascinating, like what they did to completely remove that because of 9-11. That's crazy. I'm wondering what cityscape is there in Hawaii that they'd be doing that in. I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know. Um, But maybe they don't end up in Hawaii. I'm not sure. We'll have to see when I get there. Honolulu has got some got some tall buildings. Yeah, I'm sure it does. It's just not like a it's a it's a five second scene. It was close enough that they completely redid it because of because of the World Trade Centers. But we still have them in Oliver and Company, which is pretty interesting. There were a couple fun Disney references in this movie that I noticed. I may not even notice them all. First one I saw was Fagin looks at his wrist and he has like four watches on and one of them is a Mickey Mouse watch. You notice that? Oh, nice. I did not notice. And then I believe it's the Chihuahua who says like, hi ho, hi ho, it's off to work we go <laughs> at one point. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there are more things plugged in there some in places, especially with the billboards and stuff. This movie and the, and the design of this movie, especially the main bad guy, what was his name? Sykes, I think. They took all these names from Oliver Twist. Fag- oh. Fagin is definitely a character in Oliver Twist. Sykes, I believe, is as well. Yeah, yeah. William Sykes, Bill Sykes is a character in, in, in Oliver Twist. But it reminded me of this former ride at Disney's California Adventure, which if you guys have your browsers open, you should just look it up right now. It's called Superstar Limo. It's this ride that was put in at the opening of Disney's California Adventure, which was a very low budget park at the time that Michael Eisner kind of rushed into production. And this ride, they decided it was a, it was a great idea to feature animatronic versions of all these different actors that are that are like that are like under contract with Disney at the time, which is a bad idea in the first place because you know those contracts are going to end and lapse. But it's this ride through this like terrible, terribly caricatured Hollywood past <laughs> like animatronics of Drew Carey and Robin Williams. And, and, Anto- and Antonio Banderas and Whoopi Goldberg. And like this is terrifying. Melanie Griffin, <laughs> Tim Allen. And it's like you're going to your movie premiere in Hollywood. But if you look, I don't know if they, you got to find the right video, but every every ride vehicle has a little screen. And it's like your agent talking to you. Like, you got to go make it to the premiere. And it's like this weird puppet character. And it looks <laughs> just like the Bill Sykes <laughs> character. The bad guy in this movie. I recommend checking out the videos and the history of the of the Superstar Limo from DCA. Wow. What they did is they took it and they turned it into a Monsters, Inc. ride. And they basically took all of the animatronics and reskinned them as Monsters, Inc. characters. Yeah, they're in like the same pose. Yeah, and sort of redid uh, the scenery. It's actually, I actually really like the ride. It's, it's, a fun, it's a fun little dark ride. But if only the people knew what it used to be, Superstar Limo. I've just found a website that goes through the entire script you get to hear while you're on that ride. So, <laughs> no, I mean the Disney Disney theme park freaks like myself are kind of obsessed with this ride because it's just fascinating that it ever happened. That's insane. So, anyway, anything else about Oliver and Company, the movie we're actually here to talk about? I mean, I think you talked about it in your history at the beginning, but I definitely noticed which parts of the animation were CGI compared to hand-drawn. It's very... Yeah. It sticks out a lot in these old movies. It does, and I was noting it as I was going. There's a shot where she's playing... The girl's playing the piano, and the camera, like, turns around the piano and goes out the window. Uh, yeah. Certainly the train. His ca- The bad guy's car. Oh, yeah, with that hood ornament. Yeah. 
Yeah, but at least they're trying out new things and it, it generally works. And I feel like audiences back then probably wouldn't have even noticed. Totally. Like, oh, that looks kind of different, but they would never, I feel like it wouldn't stand out as much as it does today. All right, Forrest, we need a uh, rating system for Oliver and Company. All right. Um, we're going to rate it on uh, New York City landmarks. Dave's going to freak if you don't have a number. Oh, wait. I mean, you have do, to have wait, a number. How do you do? Wait, what do you mean? Like it has to be out of something. We're going to do uh, out of 10 Huey Lewis songs. Okay. Um, I really liked it. Uh, kept my attention. I'd go... I'd go with seven uh, Huey Lewis songs. Okay. David? 5.9 Huey <laughs> Lewis songs out of 10. I talked about the things I liked. Like I liked the relationships between the, the gang of dogs and like the friendships they had and the kitten's relationship with her human or his human and everything. But I didn't really like the villain. Just I don't know. The story just was all right. 5.9. Yeah, I mean, I'd just say five out of ten. Like it was fine. It wasn't like a bad movie. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say don't ever watch it. I think it's fun. Like it has its fun moments. It certainly is pretty dark in places. I wouldn't really show show it to 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 my kid in the near future. I mean, a couple of the dogs get electrocuted to death on train tracks. Yeah, that scene very dark. Overall, I mean, I'm glad that this sort of jump started Disney into the next you know dozen movies that are that are mostly amazing. They made their money back and then some, so they could continue to do this. <laughs> so with that, it gets some historical credit. Well, I do have a question for you guys. Yes. As you guys watch these movies, do you find yourself becoming more critical of them? No, I think I've been pretty critical since the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I think when they're become when there are now more to compare to, yes. But I think also, I mean, a huge part of this is, is nostalgia. Sure. Which is totally valid. And I think... I mean, I think I can analyze them both ways and nostalgia and just as a movie without that. But I think nostalgia helps. And the ones I haven't seen before got to be really good <laughs> for me to really like them. That's fair. The stretch of movies we were going through last time you were on the show, like if this would have been right after that, it would have been like a refreshing full story movie. But we've had a lot of those at this point. So I guess, yeah, probably a little bit more critical after getting you know, Peter Pan and other really good ones. So with that, we will finish this show for us. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. I hope you'll have me back again someday. Uh, yeah, you want to do Frozen real bad, don't you? Uh, and number two, please. And Frozen two. <laughs> <laughs> well, based on our current schedule, Frozen one will be released. Uh, where is this? On Christmas Day 2019. That's so fitting. I love and, it. And uh, Frozen two end of January. It looks like or beginning of February. So. Next week, did I say thanks to David? Thanks, David. Good to see you. <laughs> Listen, kid, I hate to break it to you, but the dynamic duo is now the dynamic Uno. <laughs> oh, man. All right. I teased at the top of the show that we had a special announcement to make. I actually have two special announcements. The first one's not quite as exciting as the second. So the first one, next week is Little Mermaid, and we are doing a very special, I guess, live episode of the show. So David and I are going to be on vacation together with our wives. So we're going to do a live, in-person, four-person Little Mermaid episode. So uh, we'll see how that goes. And the bigger special announcement that I have is later this week, either Friday or Saturday, I'm not sure, but it'll pop up in your feed. 
we will have a special bonus episode with the director of Oliver and Company, George Scribner. He's an animator, a painter, an imagineer. He worked on Mickey's Philhar Magic at the Magic Kingdom. He worked on the Mexico boat ride at Epcot, and he directed Oliver and Company. I had a great conversation with him, and I'll be releasing that later this week. So stay tuned for that. All right, that's it. We'll see you later this week. Goodbye. Woohoo! Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Disney One by One podcast. If you have any questions or suggestions, send us an email to Disney1x1 at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Disney1x1 and at Disney1x1.com. We'll be back next week with another exciting episode of the Disney One by One podcast. No, it can't be true. I can fly if I wanted to. Like a bird.